0: Dave here. Before diving into this next episode, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on the mission statement of the podcast as stated at the beginning of each episode. Stories from the Pitch is a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I've been thinking about this statement a fair bit recently because the small team of producers and contributors who make this project a reality rarely fact-check the information that the people being interviewed provide. Quite often the exact dates and locations get a bit blurry after a few decades have elapsed, so please take the word history with a grain of salt, and accept that these are the memories of the people who are sharing them, and sometimes not ironclad facts. It's also important to realize that these memories are very autobiographical in nature and entirely subjective. Say, for example, you took 10 people, put them all in the same place, watching the same thing, then asked them what happened. It's possible that you'd get 10 different versions of exactly the same event. All this to say that the history aspect of this living oral history project is sometimes open to a little interpretation. What we do stand behind 100% is the fact that one by one we're trying to capture and share some of the wonderfully crazy people who make up the street performing community, and we hope you're enjoying it. All right, let's get to it.
1: We were at a place called Telendos, which is off the island of Koz, which was sister cities with Darwin. Then she decided this island's too small, we've got to go to the bigger island and make some real money. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so we set up on an, uh, Koz. And his, uh, yeah, the longer story would be his idea was go to the bazooki bars where they play the um, music Right. focus on that. But he couldn't get the interview he wanted, so I said, well, look, we've got no money. on it. Let's do something on the street. And everyone's sitting at the tavernas, having a cup of tea, a coffee, and one more snack. And they can sit there the whole day, and the restaurant owners are quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas this Indian magician starts up on the street and sucks everyone out of the <laughs> tavernas and cafes and whatnot. Wonderful shows. And I look up, and of course, three quarters of the way through, and there's police lights flashing in the background, you know. And they're pushing their way through, and they've kind of taken me to jail. And wonderful thing there, the audience, rather than sitting there like sheep, going, oh, well, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, yelling at the police, leave him alone, what do you think you're doing, this is a free country, we can do whatever, blah, blah, blah. but anyway, we get taken off to the thing. Of the police station. And I said the policeman, look, if there's any problem, we can go back to the other island. Am I allowed to work here or not? And they were really kind of... <laughs> Talk about the Indian head oh, <laughs> many <maybe>. <laughs> But I think what had obviously happened that the Taverna owners call up and say, Look, this guy's interrupting our flow of the thing, just move him on. And they just wanted to move me on. But didn't say it in direct terms, and I was probably thick enough at the time to go out again the next night. <laughs> and again, flashing lights. My friends collecting for the hat afterwards and whatnot. Could take me to the hotel room, collect all my gear, put me on a ferry boat with uh, two policemen and says uh, we're sending you to rhodos and from rhodos you'll pay for these two policemen to fly with you to Athens and you'll be deported out of the country uh, not good so we get the ferry ride to rhodos i get off and um, i think i don't see these policemen anywhere time to do a little bit of a run on them. <laughs> i'm kind of heading down the wharf at the end of the wharf i see them in the police car and then it's calls me over winds his window down and says we are only joking with you you are free man you go. gold I thought cool wonderful but i still got no money what am I going to do so I'm looking around and I've got travelers checks but these travelers checks fell in the water they were wet and I'm thinking what am I going to do with that so I go down to um, the tr- American Express Travelers thing and I present my thing the guy looks at me and says you're that magician that works in manly aren't you I'm the Australian Greek. I'm here, you know, I work here, um, blah, 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 blah. No problem with these checks. So I'm (laughs) signed about to the money. I said, great, I'm back to the island I was on. Jump on a ferry boat. Sitting there, it's quite a long journey. And I see the stage. On the ferry boat. On the ferry boat. Yeah, I go, great. Set up, wonderful show. Stand there with the hat out. Look up, same policeman. (laughs)
0: What
1: what do I have to do? And he walks up to me and he says, Look, my friend, I'm just doing my job. I'm on holidays now. He gives me some drachma and says, Good luck to you. I love your show.
0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. For many street performers, the vocation is more of a calling than a career. You become a street performer because you're inexplicably drawn to it, almost as though the choice was predestined and the journey a greater cosmic lesson meant to enlighten you. Being a street performer is part journey and part destination, Or perhaps the journey is the destination, because every pitch, every show, and every audience is meant to teach you something. Known to some as Antoru Mantoru, to others as Jardu, Andrew Elliott's relationship to his performance seems to embrace this sort of spiritual view, which on some levels seems entirely appropriate for a guy who plays the role of a mystic from India. I had the chance to sit down and chat with Andrew one morning while we were both performing in Dubai. It was a great chance to dig a bit deeper into Andrew's backstory, hear about how he's used street performing as a vehicle for life, and discover a little bit more about this Indian-Australian magician who's lived a life filled with so many great stories from the pitch.
2: So today is, what, we will the 18th of March, 2017, at the Dubai Marina Mall Street Performance Festival. Yep, and we're just getting a cup of tea and sitting down for a chat with Mr. Andrew Elliott, also known as Jardin.
1: Jardin. And I like Jordan. it was Jardude. <laughs> Jardude. <laughs> bring it out of the ancient history into the modern hip world. Do you think? time. Where was it that we met first? Would have had to have been Granville Island or English Bay. Because you got to Vancouver for the comedy festival too, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, I think I followed Nick across. He um, had a house truck in Vancouver.
2: Yeah, and he was um, was touring with Petra at the time.
1: Petra, yeah. I think it was the following year that we had kind of hung out in the Gold Coast. He said, why don't you come over to Canada? So I followed him over. And we got to immigration, and he's got his kind of cool... Swashbuckling thing. going on, and immigration says to me how long... Excuse me, sir, Indian guy. Along with up like a up like? about what story am I meant to tell and stuttering and all this kind of thing. He says, looks at me and says, three months? I go, yes. And says, well, why are you here? Um, and he tells me, To visit family <laughs> I said, Yes. Please go through. <laughs> I'm waiting like two hours <laughs> and Nick Got his bags searched. They looked for his juggling clubs and saying you're going to come here and work. He's going, no, I'm not. (laughs) Andy, Andy, I just stuck to my story. I stuck to my story, (laughs) and uh, they let him through. There you go. We were out on the English Bay. He had to tour the he's touring the Canadian festivals. Says, just hang in my truck. And I parked it at that time. Can you imagine on English Bay? There was a little parking spot that had unlimited parking. Right. I was there three months. Yeah. Just going out, trotting out in the evening, doing, doing the moves. show, coming back, throw the money in the corner, go out and, and do whatever it is you want to do, come Beautiful. back, it was lovely.
2: Yeah, but that was in very specific times. It's not like that anymore. No, not at all. Things have changed. Well, let's go back. Where was it that you first started?
1: Street performing, magic. Which was first, the magic of the street performing? Magic. As a seven-year-old boy, I just wanted um, no toys magic tricks. My grandfather had a book that I found out much later my aunt from England had left there. I think it might have been Bruce Elliot or somebody like that. But lovely slide of hand business. And I just loved to just sit and do coin rolls and this and that, but didn't really know what to do with these slides. That was what, seven in nine sixty nine. Then where were we? We're pretty in, in the air, this was in Malaysia because we were from an Air Force family and we'd travel around different locations. So, as a, in a kid in that environment, it was something really self contained as well. Dunninger's Book of Magic, but I also got. Huge, lovely big book. <laughs> wonderful diagrams. The drawings are fantastic. Right. But I don't think I found one trick in that book that actually worked. <laughs> it was like the guy had sat down and just made up, well, this is possibly how it was done. Right. But the inspiring, the diagrams and the inspiration from that I thought, well, wow, this is really mysterious.
2: Do you think and that sense of magic was something that tapped into a personality treat that you
1: were really drawn to? For me, it was definitely the sense of wonder. You know the old coin slide thing? You put the coin in there, and you go like that, and you pull it out. And my brain goes, it's gone. (laughs) But there's that moment when your brain stops thinking, because it's confused. Right. Right. (laughs) Or there's maybe clarity from confusion, (laughs) whichever way it works. And I just liked that. I'd have no desire to perform or anything. It was just this, then this again in Malaysia that would have been getting more like 71 my father was posted back to Butterworth in Penang and we had a traditional Indian magician squat down coming into the um, front yard Mm -hmm. did this amazing trick with a bowl of water a ring drops the woman's ring into the bowl of water pours in the sand and then pulls out the sand and it's dry and pulls out the ring and gives it to her and it was dry you know and it was pretty much after that getting back to your question the first show I ever did was Mm -hmm. with my best friend in the front yard set it up invited all the kids in the street they're all Air Force kids like uh, from the Australian Air Force Base there and charged them all to come in the door I've still got a photograph of that show and I remember standing there And it's like, you know, some things in life just don't change. But I'm looking over the fence and seeing a line of people watching, local people. And I'm thinking to myself, but they haven't paid. (laughs) So (laughs) So from a
2: very early age, you were an entrepreneur.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. 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 Well, what are these people walking away? What do they think? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, um, to speed up the evolution of the thing. high school talent competition (laughs) winning this competition I don't know how but I got on the front page of the Newcastle Morning Herald during a nice card spring and maybe again the entrepreneur side I find myself in the offices of the local shopping centre in Newcastle telling the guy I should be you should employ me during the school holiday time to do magic shows he mm-hmm. says yeah. well he said like why would I do that I said because I'm on the front page of the newspaper and he picks up the newspaper off his desk and says well so you are okay we'll have you <laughs> 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 and there was this kind of thing of shopping malls and that kind of thing with at that time for me it was the colour changing canes and the jug milk jug pitchers and all this very straight uh, magic shop traditional magic, magic traditional magic, magic. magic. And I've got to say, it never really... uh, I didn't love it. How old were you at this time? Fourteen. And I got notoriety as being the youngest magician of the Society of American Magicians somebody else had written into the newspaper and said they were the youngest. So I said, no, 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 I'm the youngest. I can prove it because I lied about my age. <laughs> Magicians lie okay, all the time. <laughs> so, not really enjoying it, but so why would you continue? It just felt very stilted and it felt like you're presenting tricks. And the reason I say it is because the next step of the journey was finishing school and going to India and meeting this community of street magicians which had passed their thing had been passed on from father to son for as long as they could remember
2: Mm.
1: and they're turning up in the marketplace with their bag of stuff and setting up and you really don't know if these are real magicians or they're tricksters and the belief the public get drawn in and mesmerized by their act and of course at the end of it there'll be people come up well they sell rings which are lucky charms and necklace things but people come up and say you know this uh, girl I like she doesn't look at me or my son doesn't listen to what I tell him and he's misbehaving all the time can you do anything my business doesn't work can you can you do something and whatever problem's there like will say, yeah, yeah, can you just come to my room this evening, bring some hashish or, um, Andrew, do you want us to drink whiskey tonight? Whiskey tonight? Oh, maybe, okay. Bring a bottle of whiskey, bring two lemons, uh, a red chili. Come. <clears throat> um, packs up his show eventually after working the day, goes home, and there'd be this line of people. <laughs> Waiting
2: to get in to speak to the magician.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he comes in, and the guy comes in, and he says, "Ah, oh, well, what you do is you take this uh, lemon, cut it in half when your son's asleep you twirl it three times around his head drop three drops on his forehead take that lemon down to the river throw it in the river no problem everything will be fine and um, I asked him what happens if the guy comes back and it doesn't work and he says well I'll ask him did you turn the lemon three times clockwise (laughs) or three times anti-clockwise ah this is the problem go back and try again but in some ways, this is where they get their biggest problems in India, is that legally they're misrepresenting themselves and exploiting the superstition of village people. That's how it's registered. Right. But my take on it is really, is it any different from a guy in New York um, who sits down and gets psychoanalyzed? If you, He will be told that his problem is with being caught up in his mind and not being able to feel and this and that it was a guy from the Pacific Islands, he'd be told, you're being um, affected by the spirits of your ancestors and you're allowing them into your life, but we'll do this ritual and it'll be removed. And because he believes it, in spite of his culture, it will be removed. Right, right. Whereas if you do that for the guy from New York and sitting down in the Pacific Islands, it's not going to work. You know? Well, he's going to look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you. And then you want me to jump into a
2: volcano? No. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. So you went to India
1: specifically to study with this group. My deal was actually getting out of school early. Well, to the last couple of years, I decided, Look, just leave me alone. I know I could do better, but I've got a plan to go to India and learn Indian cooking, and come back and be a chef. And <laughs> in a way that was a formal kind of course like that, my parents were prepared to say, "Well, we will support you while you're doing that." But magic wasn't a part of it at that point. Well, the magic was in the back of my mind, and my uncle, who was there, knew I loved magic, so he introduced me to this cooperative of street performers in Delhi, who had basically been bulldozed off their land by Indra Gandhi's emergency policies, which basically said there'll be no begging in India. There are no beggars in India. It's been outlawed. And look, we bulldozed all the slums and... It was quite harsh what she was doing, but these guys stood up, formed into a cooperative and said, you know, we're part of a living culture. Uh, once this is dead, you can't resurrect it. Right. So these 45 families got this place where they could live and continue the continue, culture. Yeah, yeah. So you went to study
2: cooking and then your uncle introduced you to this community street Yeah, gardens. so
1: I'm, here I am joined up as an 18-year-old to the Indian Institute of Hotel Management and Applied Nutrition, big sign the one-year cookery course, uh, living in the back of a, door, with a dormitory with three boys in the room, thinking, "I really want to discover my Indian roots." I <laughs> um, left well, what, 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 what is your background? Thank you. Um, my mother was Malaysian-born Sri Lankan Tamil, which means my grandfather came from Sri Lanka, and his family probably came well came from Tamil Nadu, which is South India. Okay. And my father was Europe, well, Caucasian, British. Born, again, from a military background, from Yorkshire, he decided at 16 to migrate to Australia. Worked on a sheep station and conductor, this and that tram conductor. Eventually joined the Air Force, got posted to Malaysia, where he met my mother, who was nursing and they decided to get married. And, of course, in the 50s, it was like, come on, son, you know, you can hang out with these girls in the bars, but you don't take them home. <laughs> and they had to give an, have an interview, and they found out, well, he was a Boy Scout leader, and she was a Girl Guide leader. And they met over the campfire, and it was this kind of very innocent uh, scenario. <laughs> and they were, oh, okay, off you go. So then my brother was born in Malaysia, and then I was born in Australia. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, so... Of course, growing up in Australia, it was like, well, even the teachers, when I said I'm going to India, said, oh, you're going home then, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, there's a continual conversation about, well, you know, are you really from? Right. Really? <clears throat> so I was determined, well, if I'm not Australian, I'm Indian, I want to go and find out what the Indians are doing. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So I thought, all right, I'll sit and join this cookery class. And um, as the 18-year-old who had been getting a little bit into the dope smoking while he's in later years of high school... Mm-hmm there was a door that was opened in the cooking college, (laughs) which meant kind of literally going around the back and there's marijuana plants growing and you're just rubbing out your own hash and uh, (laughs) smoking. So, um, yeah, these magicians also like to smoke a lot. So I ended up moving between the cooking college and, ironically, it was literally four kilometres down the road was this village of performers. Oh, so... A hopscotch and a jump from where you were anyway. Yeah. So I'd be spending my time there and hanging out with these magicians and being um, magic brothers and smoking a lot of ganja and going back and eventually dropped out of the cooking school. So the Rajiv, the organizer of the cooperative, said, Well, how would you like to make a magic set? You can live in the slum, we'll give you a tent. As in, you had nowhere to stay. Sure. And you make a prototype. You go around with these magicians, you talk to the carpenters, and we want all these traditional toys so we can sell them to the middle-upper class kids. little set. Somebody else is writing a book on how the snake charms But There are different people doing projects to expose this community to the... To say they're still alive and well, essentially, and to generate some income for the cooperative. Right. So I got involved with that. So you've got traditional Indian In the end I think the prototype's still sitting under the bed probably <laughs> in the office in New Delhi but it was an excuse <laughs> to be there. Lovely um, stories later about how Andrew embezzled all this money from the cooperative and ran away without producing anything. Really? But the real story is this kind of scenario where, oh Nassif, could you go and uh, pick up the stuff that's ready from the carpenter? Here's the money to do it. Goes to the carpenter comes back it wasn't ready yet. So I said, well, where's the money? He says, um, we spent it on tea and beadies, cigarettes and uh, bus fare and this and that. And it's just going like water in all these different directions. <laughs> but yeah, we went on the road up to, went to Nepal eventually on buses and setting up doing these street shows, which, extraordinary. Were you doing tricks as well, along with the other musicians, or being a helper? or: It was more I could be a little showcase piece as a, a kind of Australian at one stage the Central Park in is called Kannop Place in Delhi, uh-huh. and the performers aren't allowed to perform there. They're beggars, in a sense, from that perspective. But I, so I went and said, "Well, officially, they have this card from the cooperative that says they're allowed to perform wherever they like so let's do a show here and talk to the police guy there and he says well really we're not allowed to do it but we can make an exception once since he's your guru and you've come all the way from Australia we will let them let you perform and uh, got everything down there and the local policeman on the spot said no 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 you're not performing <laughs> and have to march back to the main office <laughs> and get somebody from there come back down and did the show and I did this eat the string cut the stomach pull it out the stomach where you actually have to pierce the skin in the flesh of your belly you put a sewing needle through there so you cover the bottom hole with your hand like this and then you pull the top string and the the skin actually lifts up with Uh, the string and it looks like it's coming out from your stomach it kind of grossed out the audience even in India I think (laughs) but um, I think that was one of the few times I performed um, with them. I don't think they were really into my style after that. <laughs> Ooh, he's the weird one. It was a bit weird even for them. Um, and that's but what was interesting in that show, I think why I brought it up, was that there was a moment where people were just throwing money, and I bent down to pick up these coins, and it was like you know, you have this deja vu thing, that, and I know I've dreamt it. That you're digging in the ground, you're just pushing away like this, and you're taking out money. money. And then you realize the more you just dig or push the dirt away, there's more money there, and you can do that. That's a kind of a, a indefinite source. And I think it was a kind of thing about that early days of street performing. You it's figured there yeah. And well, it's a path, and that's generally how my incomes come. You know, it's not like chasing it. It's just. There's a You're living life for first and the street performing is a vehicle to do that, to live life in an interesting way, which is, I suppose getting back to a different conversation but, uh, about the reasons or what motivates one to street perform and sure. being in those days more of a lifestyle. You've turned your life into an adventure as
2: opposed to a regular routine. which is mm, mm. I think that's very much of uh, a generation or two ago. That you sought that out as opposed to seeking street performing out as an income source. Well, oh, as a career, or yeah, turning street performing into a career as opposed to a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So,
1: how long were you in India? That was about two years. I became more Indian than my mother could recognize. <laughs> I came back and they're laughing behind their hands, going, "What happened to my son?" Because <laughs> I vehemently to be to live in this village, you had to. The back story is that if they knew that a foreigner Australian was living there, the police would automatically come and assume they were selling me drugs and blame them and pull me out of there, in a sense. So right. I had to grow the moustache, cut my hair, just shut up, pretend you're one of us. But the view of India then just changed. You're not a foreigner walking the streets and just being out of sync and bashed around by this country in a way that until you get in sync with it, it can be quite uh, nerve-wracking. And this gave this little umbrella to sit under Mm. and view the world, and you can feel nobody's, there's no one's attention on you. Um, So yeah, became Indianized, and getting back to that career thing or this lifestyle, I feel that the show, the character, everything came out of that experience of wearing the Indian <laughs> that was normal. Thing. Right, right. It was somebody uh, had become you transformed yourself mm, into this character almost. Mm,
0: mm,
2: out of necessity to a degree. To be able to fit in so that they were, you were not getting into trouble with the police for this choice of where I you want to be.
1: They were mostly Muslims, so there's very the ways of conducting yourself and you know, from little things, you know, which hand you eat with and which um, Which hand you wash your bum with? (laughs) It's kind of this code of behaviour, and because you're the foreigner, he, my friend, I thought it was his responsibility to have me behaving properly in the eyes of everybody else as well. So it had its ups and down points. Like they had me going, Hindustani, I'm Indian. You are Indian. Your mother is Indian. You are basically Indian. You're one of us. And India is wonderful like that. that It's so inclusive. Hmm. And you brought this
2: back to Australia. yeah.
1: Yeah. And when you got back, were you
2: immediately jumping into doing Indian style Performance? Or did you transition into it? What what was was the transition?
1: There was a transition of, um, I suppose in the background, the family would have said, I think for a lot of us it's been the same, it's not a real job. Right. You get a real job. And as it turned out, I had a friend in a restaurant that was looking for international waiters. So I rocked up and they said, good, perfect there's this guy, he can speak pretty good English, and wobble his head, we've got an Indian waiter. <laughs> and, uh, it's just so crazy, David. I, turning up, people are telling me, can't you speak English? <laughs> and I feel I'm speaking Indian English is actually more correct than Aussie English. Right. <laughs> I'm actually articulating my words. And But it's interesting, when the rhythms change, the brain can't, exp- it says, no, 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 I can't I don't know what's coming on. I can't decipher what's being said to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Did you do magic while you were at the restaurant? No, it was quite a formal 200-seat swish-up restaurant called Winston's. They actually televised Lady Diane and Prince Charles' wedding um, it was such a circus, you know, in the sense to say you're producing this classy food for 200 people is just not really happening, you know. It's so when was this, like, 80s? Early 80s, yeah. Yeah, 81. And you would have been in early 20s at the time? Mm, yeah, say, yeah, 20, 21, yeah. I remember I had my 21st birthday, probably, of, uh, yeah, working in that restaurant. <laughs> okay, so. so I jumped out of the... Um, Little red jacket and a bow tie. Got a bit tired of that after a while and uh, went into the kitchen and did an apprenticeship as a chef for four or five years. Wow. Um, and in the course of that, I hung out with a friend who had a pub with alternative whole food and blackboard menu and I was spending my time helping him. It's a 30-seat place and I'd go before work, after work, chop, 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 do the things and then go to work and come back. And just for the fun of it, because I liked what they were doing. I didn't... The robotized nature of the um, big restaurant was yeah. uh, something else. So... A um, bit, bit soul-destroying? Yeah. It got, got to that point. It was the place you went for a career. By working in that restaurant in Newcastle, I could easily work Sydney and a big stepping stone. You know. So as it turns out, I decided to move to my friend's place. And they said, Andrew, this is not a good career choice. That's a pub. We're the biggest place in Newcastle. Why are you? Why are you doing this? Within a month, they went bankrupt and closed the pub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, not the pub. Oh, uh, yeah, the other spot, right. no, So, in fact, you made the right I choice. Make the right choice, definitely. But and I was quite surprised that they would rather hang on to the what do you say, the program response, of where it all's going well. But you can see when you're washing the tea towels in the pots on the stove because you can't afford laundry, and the overheads of that place would have been huge. Right. Um, it was on the cards, but uh, yeah, so it was a nice uh, trip into Bohemia for Newcastle, alternative, iron and steel town, in this pub, at a vegetarian restaurant upstairs, guys in pink shirts out the back called the Castanet Club, who eventually went on to Edinburgh and won the award there. Oh, wow. They were a, a hit nationwide. Most of the members of that team are on radio television in Australia now. Wow. Um, and that was the happening place. And, uh, so, in fact, you really made the right choice. Yeah, yeah. It was wonderful. Uh, nice people, lovely environment. Did you that know. spark more interest in performing then? I would do little shows at the, uh, the back of the Castanet Club, selling kebabs <laughs> left over from the restaurant upstairs. Um, but no, not really. That was kept in the background. Finished the apprenticeship, and that's when I decided, if I don't try it now, I'm never going to do it. Performing, uh, you mean. performing. Yeah. So I got on the train with my bag of tricks, went down to Circular Quay, caught the ferry across to Manly, and they had this huge sunken amphitheatre there. Got in the bottom of that with my python the snake.
2: A real and, python? Yep.
1: Yeah, and the trick from India that I had, and there was a ferry load arriving every twenty minutes, dumping people. Wonderful it's a recreation area for the whole of Sydney so huge ferry loads huge amount of people get in there and just boom 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 <laughs> every 20 minutes another show. every 20 minutes yeah the week's wages were made in the weekend and I went well oh, that'll do and wonderful
2: and how long was the show then I mean you, you took all these things that you'd learned from India combined them with the stuff that you'd had before you'd gone to India or were you really at this point trying to present the Indian no it was 50? an
1: Indian thing and it was very small
2: So you really were influenced by the training that you had received in India and brought that mentality and that philosophy of performance and dropped it into Sydney.
1: Yeah, that's fair to say. What I had done was adapted where they would have the individual tricks, this whole idea of the ring and the orange and the not, it not coming back as expected right. and having to chase it and find it and that kind of thing. And also the snake charmers in India will not do magic. The magicians, yeah, they'll have a snake, but they won't swallow a sword, which I was doing. And, you know, things would come along and they're sitting at a party and the guy says, oh, I've got that snake in the box over there. I don't really want to keep it anymore. I go, oh, all right. And you meet, it. yeah and you meet some guy in the New to to feed fire, so you kind of learn a bit of fire reading from him and so yeah hybridized uh, bits and pieces you were getting things from all sorts of different sources no? mm. and it definitely felt to me that that was a direction that set I'm a bit of a fatalist or I believe in destiny <laughs> that that journey was all was there Pre- and i no You choice had no choice it was really, preordained yeah yeah and next thing the dollar coin comes in then the two dollar coin comes in and I remember sitting in that sunken amphitheater not realising shit, with the props I'm not actually going to be able to carry this money home <laughs> it's like yeah, well Australian money it's weighs heavy. a ton you know. Yeah. so in that sense of that wonderful feeling of being financially independent to do what you want with life and it's very much for me was a, it's been about how do you not what's a good way to say that you can't buy freedom <laughs>
2: it goes back to your imagery of digging in the dirt and finding money what? that you were open enough to follow a path that was predestined perhaps
1: mm, I think probably what I've missed is a, there's a certain level of mysticism or spiritualism on my mother's side that, for example, my auntie would say, you're probably a sadhu or a frustrated holy man in your last life. <laughs> and this idea of wanting to manifest or do magic is a leftover of that. Okay. Whether it's about life being about your spiritual development or your development as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I saw that society was restricting that or not allowing it, rightly or wrongly. And, and this, this was a way out kind of, of the kitchen of that robotization of life. There's no excuse. If I could put 10% of the energy I was putting into cooking for somebody else to make money (laughs) as a business into myself, I'm free to develop and be how I am and take full responsibility for that. That's amazing. And that's a wonderful and empowering feeling and that you're supported by the love, energy, and money from your audiences that allow you to do it. Do you think that's
2: why a lot of street performers are, are drawn to this? Because it gives them that sense of purpose and confidence in their life that regular traditional roles did, wouldn't
1: necessarily possibly as I think that's how I definitely saw it at that time sure. but as age continues you look back on it, and of course we come to a point where we say well there's well adjusted people in society that did regular jobs yeah, cool. <laughs> and they're doing just fine sure. how much of this escape was running from oneself uh-huh. or one's own uh, situation but sure it gives you the vehicle to try it and take responsibility without those strings attached
2: yeah, um, yeah so your show at this point in Manly roughly how long were you doing
1: oh 10 to 15 minutes maybe the so perfect timing for the the, the ferry yeah, yeah. <laughs> new people come in you have a show that works there was no shortage so you just got to work it and hone it up and I had a friend living in Manly so I had accommodation there And how many shows a day were you doing do you think I think maybe half a dozen of these little kind of uh, spots. Nice. So from there it was, uh, that's what we're talking about, early 80s now. So by 85, I think I considered myself a full-time street performer. performer. Um, I'd been out to Vanuatu on this thing. 85, 87, going to Greece with a friend and jumping around the islands. Doing shows. Doing shows and wonderful on ferry boats, they had these nice little stage areas. But that was 87. I tell you, I came up for the first time to Europe, Common Garden. I got protected by the famous Captain Kino for the first show. He tried valiantly to keep the security guards away from me, but they still managed to get in by the last quarter of the show. Went off to Norway, got stopped there... Pretty much every it was, it was like if you believe in the karma or the alignment of planets or whatever sure, yeah. Yeah, that was. The, I never wanted to work the main pitches, you see, because it was, I was a new boy on the block, and I thought, okay, let's just work some side kind of thing or find somewhere new. I had no. My background was very much about being able to establish your own pitch. Right, look at a place and like in London it's like well okay this looks alright and the police officer comes and says what the hell do you think you're doing <laughs> I can't believe you've never been Nick's right. <laughs> man but he can see you know, that military background of knowing how to give respect to authority sure. <laughs> and da, da 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 usually holds me in good stead and they go oh yeah okay you're following the rule and da, 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 you just move along You know? now when you mentioned Kino, did do you think he enjoyed and respected your show because
2: it was so much different than the Covent Garden tradition and it was interesting for him to see something that was working and clearly connecting with an audience but that was not of a tradition that he was as familiar with?
1: I think Paul in those days had um, a genuine enthusiasm for everybody and everything that came along and his sense of encouragement and investment in that yeah come and join it was a very inclusive which was refreshing in uh, workplace which often can be people looking after themselves uh-huh. and that closeness. But here you'd have people from the magic circle down the wonderful slides, but when they got in front of people they got so nervous the cards <laughs> kind of fly everywhere. But they could pass on stuff to performers that were working. Right. Or throwing jokes around or Uh, so on the yeah I definitely felt it was taken under his wing he was the first performer when I came to the pitch that I saw I went straight up and said look I'm a magician I want to work here he says well where's your stuff then I said well I didn't bring it down because I thought I'd just check it out but he said we'll we'll bring it tomorrow and we'll start and I said well there's a clown festival on and they won't give me a license uh, because the show." don't worry about that just come down and it'll be okay and yeah
2: so were you brought into the family of Coving Garden then Yeah, two years. Uh, 87, 88,
1: I worked pretty solidly there. Stayed in London for two straight years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Not the winters. Ran away from the winters. Where'd you go? Australia. Back to Australia. And did you work uh, back at Manly again? Yes, definitely. Manly was good. So we're talking about 87, actually no, 88 was the beginning of the expo year. Yeah, for real. So that year I remember applying for the expo in Australia. And they go, no, 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 we're looking for international um mm. go to London, everyone's going, Oh we're, we're all going down to Australia, you're coming, <laughs> well, no actually. But I think I ended up I did apply at the end from London, of course they go, Oh yes it'd be wonderful. Right. But it was that kind of uh, mentality. You can't be good if you're from Australia. Yeah, that kind of deal. So yeah, that was the beginning of Brendan Foley and the Gold Coast and Brendan's involvement was through, with Captain Keno, he recognised him as a person that could pull performers together sure. and have them, rather than being centred in Brisbane where the expo was, this is after the finish of the expo, yeah. they were prepared to pay retainer from the council to get performers to come to the Gold Coast, yeah. which allowed these uh, groups to come down. Well, and they were, it, that lasted for quite a few years. It, it, was, was, it lasted quite a while. It was...
2: Um, and I mean famous people like Kino was there, Pepe was there, Nick oh. Nicholas was there. Forest Forrest was there. Loss, um I'm pretty Butterfly sure a man ball. ended up yeah, there I on met, I in there. yeah. Yeah. I mean it was the hub for street performers who were touring Australia. And I think the expo really opened the door mm-hmm. for street performing in Australia for people from outside of Australia to consider it a winter venue.
1: Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. like
2: end of the eighties was like the oh. Opening yeah. of the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that tradition ended up spawning a whole new generation of Australian based performers because of being exposed to acts at the, the Brisbane Expo and then having more international acts coming through the country and seeing what was possible and what worked and
1: yeah. then this whole Australian sort of style evolved. Yeah. I think it's pretty fair to say because there was also things like the Sydney Festival which was in January as well that was fairly well established I think Adelaide Fringe was at the, yeah that was Fringe was, was I did it in 1990 as well yeah. and it was clearly established for a number yeah. of years before I yeah. got there so there was a little circuit down there but for me it was comparing those first days in Manly after the Covent Garden experience you knew how to take what was this tiny little thing and sell it big big on a grander scale Um, and I think that's the as you say what was able to lift a lot of performers up getting that exposure Um, there's a genuine evolution
2: mm. of thinking small and contained to thinking how Mm. can we push it Mm. to a larger scale perhaps Mm. Mm. yeah I think maybe too the whole expo exposure thing too got performers to start to like street performers especially to think about how can we tap into more of this festival Environment, as opposed to going out on the street where people are maybe walking by to go to something else. People at a festival are very clearly there
1: without uh, a thought to go somewhere else. Yeah, when, the, when they've been primed, as opposed to raw street. great right. Because I was always well for me the early days were about. I well, literally I remember a time must have been during the cooking days. So I had the basket and the bag. I'm hitchhiking up the coast. On the first stop. The guy dropped me off was Port Macquarie. They happened to be having their Festival of the Pines. And I went in and set up and did all the thing. Wonderful. And again, that wonderful sense of being supported, and you can move on to the next place, Gold Coast. Um, you try and look for locations where the... I remember being with a group of performers in Melbourne in March. There's 101 of these little suburban festivals and you go out and you're looking around and it's like, oh no, and stall, 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 stall no room, no room, no room, no room and there's one, first we go we walked around this corner I think it was with Lee and Lee Ross and Rex Boyd yeah uh, we walked around this corner and here's this grass hill amphitheater <laughs> style thing we look at, Drew Franklin I think was there as well and you know this long it's like a pilgrimage and you've reached the promised land and it's like wow yeah <And> the clouds <laughs> open up the sun shines <laughs> down yeah, and shows the beautiful it, but that journey of discovery and finding that pitch and are the amazing yeah 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 so
2: would you say that when you were in London Paul or Captain Keno became quite a mentor to you definitely yeah
1: yeah the, um, I think because he was the, we were talking earlier about the standard thing in Covent Garden was are you good enough to be on the pitch right. I've got to be there and make my thing and in that sense quite professional for some people almost like going to office and they, they there's a hierarchy of, yeah. of things yeah. yeah and he was the one that was inclusive they said not everyone join in so somebody said to me I think it might have been Alex Dandridge saying he would have made a wonderful politician because it's like leading the game, Come boys, <laughs> We're all together. Right. You're either with me or you're against me, you know. Right, right, and it's right. his way or the highway, you know. <laughs> but as you get in Australia with the Gold Coast and that moulding of performers together and the passing on of these skills and empowerment of people. And you know, as I just mentioned earlier, I came from this Indian background or these Indian performers where you had to be born into it. Right. There were a lot of people there that said that Naseep should not be teaching me this magic. I'm going to go to the West and exploit it. You know, there would be a disadvantage to them. But the fact that I could do magic already and sit and show past these skills, I was considered a brother in magic. Uh-huh, right. And then it was okay.
2: In the same way that you Kino <laughs> recognized a brotherhood or a family relationship with all performers? Is that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, just genuinely... Um, a desire to have a scene I suppose as I said it was this engaging of people from the magic circle that could do wonderful sleight of hand but when they got in front of a crowd the cards flew away and mm-hmm. they couldn't do that but they added something to the mix somebody else might add it might even be the bums that are sitting around there asked for help you put them to work picking up the chains and Doing something, but you make it inclusive so they're on your side, they're not a problem anymore. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I can't say I know exactly what the motivation was there. but uh, Do you think you took certain uh, lessons from him? Well, I think Common Garden in general, it'd be fair to say I was a straight magician doing magic tricks without much understanding of a presentation style, how to play a larger audience. So the things like the clapping and cheering, the type of jokes that are going to make it entertainment rather than a straight magic trick, that yeah. transition.
2: shooting, Changing from just straight wonder to uh, a more complete entertainment
1: package? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm getting some idea of how to do that. Sure, <laughs> sure. sure. Kind of, in those days, it was considered, well, you shouldn't be stealing it directly. Take that idea, try and understand why that joke works, mm. and adapt it to what you're doing. Right. And then eventually it becomes, well, you can have a whole arsenal of this stuff, but do you know how to place that joke? Right. And I'll wait for an opportunity that that makes sense in, rather than just regurgitating lines. To get the laughter from it, right. um, So yeah, we've all seen that evolution happen. Mm. I remember there was a time when you could tell where a performer came from by his style or jokes, and yeah, like the, the regional region. differences. Yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There's very
2: specific things that seem to work in certain places because of the audience. I mean mentioning earlier that it, after Expo in Australia there seemed to become an Australian
1: style mm. that then ended up going around the world a little bit which I think was very much a Covent Garden based on a Covent Garden style which yeah. interesting enough well for me I was in Covent Garden those two years uh, and I saw well you can be trained by your audience sure, and sure. for Covent Garden it was a An audience that was moving a lot, tourists coming, going... So if you did give content, people felt they got something, they can live. Right. But if you have the bike there and you build it without actually giving anything... And the British, for me, are wonderful that they can stand there and explore character and be funny and not actually get to the trick. (laughs) Or go a long way around and still be entertaining. Right. And that, in a sense, is that style of... If you give, there's a payoff. there's are less likely, yeah. Yeah, and I think that is why how that was built was I wanted to give the trick and to give the content. And for me, North America meant and the festivals meant you could do that. Ah, festivals. So we got to that point of doing straight
2: street, going to Covent Garden, doing touring Europe. Mm. But it was sort of late '80s at this point, which is right when the whole North American festival circuit really took off. It, yeah. uh, Edmonton being about 85-ish and Halifax being 87 Mm. and once those two sort of established all of a sudden all over North America there seemed to be busking festivals street performers festivals that started to pop up and people who ended up being in North America found that oh comedy festivals oh uh, a music festival or Dragon Boat Festival all these places where there are natural gatherings of crowds became a much I'm going to say easier venue to play for a street performer who had chops from hardcore street mm-hmm. walking into mm-hmm. an environment mm-hmm. like this it was like taking candy from children <laughs> <laughs> and did you did, did you enjoy taking that candy from
1: children <laughs> You can say the Indian or the businessman. <laughs> I'm starting to hear it myself. You know? <laughs> it's like, but it's true. Like I remember the very first time the in those days. You know, like just oh, yeah. like how much. How, I remember one time thinking, well, you know, am I? I and good, for me, it was, am I liked by people? Do they like what I do? And once that's there, it was well, then how much do you like me? Is it about the goals? Is it about the where it can go? And you've got to go through all that before you come back to something, which is, you know, how do you pace yourself with this thing? <laughs> sure, sure. And, I mean, I think
2: when we're young and we have all this energy to do it mm. and are craving more, more, mm. more attention, more mm. money, more uh, success, more whatever what you, whatever your more is, mm. you're chasing that feeling. You're getting so gratified by the Confidence you're gaining mm-hmm. from an audience mm-hmm. who's telling you that you're fabulous
1: mm-hmm. and everything else, that it's addictive, yeah, it's yeah. a drug, yeah, yeah. And North America definitely was turn up to these festivals and they're picking up the show for you. So, um, give g- me mm-hmm. w- which festivals did you hit that first year was in uh, 91, 90? like that, possibly 91, 92, that trip over with Nick, where he had gone off, done his the, the circuit. Oh, in Vancouver, I think there was a dragon boat festival and a few little bits like that pieces uh-huh. I picked up. And eventually Angus MacDonald, I think, he introduced me to Dick. Think of Yeah and said you've got to you know, go this guy and da 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 So then Dick called me over for the Edmonton Festival. So I'd say that was the first Yeah. And then, as he said, that thing developed and at one stage, I think I did 12 festivals in the summer, bouncing across... Canada <laughs> uh, yeah, or North America? Right? Yeah, Canada. I yeah. uh, went to Denver, I think was probably included. Right. Um, oh, Christ, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but they were coordinating those days as a group, so it was possible to... Uh, Play a from, tour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's been... Uh, not the case anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think there's... Uh, I think there's a coordination amongst festivals, but there's more competition. There are just uh, more performers. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah, yeah. In those days, because there were, let's just for numbers, there were 10 people that were being considered, mm-hmm. now there's 100 people being considered, <laughs> Yeah. and so festival A, B, C, and D might pick one person that's the same, but then because there's such a bigger pool of entertainment, it might make more sense, budget-wise, for them to bring somebody in that's closer. Than mm. to go along with the team and try to get this group of people consistent from start mm. to finish. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Good days though; those were good days. Yeah, yeah. And so, so uh, North American circuit was quite successful, but always going back to Australia. I
1: think going back nineties? I got married in Darwin, so Darwin has to come into that mix somewhere. Darwin, I went up for a friend's wedding. And thought, oh, I'll just take my bag of tricks along to see what's going on. And it turned out that an Indian magician in the north of Australia, with tourists that are reasonably well healed, f- drive their four-wheel drives up there mm-hmm. with the expectation of, we're getting close to Asia. And this Indian snake guy, it made sense. There's very uh, I don't know, It's about trying to find a place where you show us context. Right. And I could do no wrong in that place, it was wonderful. Uh, And I've often found that I've gone off this beaten path and, for example, go to Singapore for one gig, meet a woman there and decide I'd like to stay there for a bit and uh, open an event company. And I think I've worked every hotel with the Singapore skyline that four years that I was there. even though I've been known in the community for a long time Mm. I haven't really hung out or worked in that community right last time I was officially in Adelaide was 1988 wow 88 yeah wow I might have come and done one
2: show one year but that's it it goes to you saying before about finding your own pitch yeah developing your own spaces so Singapore you did it Darwin you did it did you have other spots on the map that you hit? I
1: think college campuses in Australia,
2: uh-huh.
1: Tafes and that kind of thing. Uh, that was quite a regular thing for a bit. What have I done with my time? Well, <laughs> like, do <you> <laughs> that's doesn't it? Well, coming here because in a way, I've it's again going back to the I mean servicing a lifestyle, and you're doing enough. I always had this picture maybe from the type of producers that came to the village in India that was happily to exploit these guys and take them to America and Japan and places. And they would tell me unofficially, you two can do it. They're only allowed to be paid Indian wages. It's a law from the Indian government. Mm -hmm. And you can charge Western prices to the guys in the West and you can make all this money off them. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with this, you know. The idea that um, the entertainment industry could very easily eat you up, <laughs> get what they need from it, <laughs> and spit you out. So, even like television appearances where they would say, Hey, you know, you're getting the exposure I go, oh, Come on, <laughs> if I had a theatre and I'm wanting to sell tickets, fine, but you will need me in this equation, you pay me. Right. Or I'm, I'm not interested. Right. I'm, it wasn't about a career or becoming famous as a magician. I'm more like the labour that just wants to be paid for the entertainment value that you're offering uh-huh. for that particular time. End of story. It, hey, ironically, life has provided for that need in a spectacular way for me, you know. Taking um, the dirt, there's more money. Yeah, in the dirt, yeah, there's more money. But don't get obsessed with it. Live the life, have a life, uh-huh. and then let this thing enhance it. Rather than getting caught up in the, I want to be a performer. I have to extend this and drive it and take it places. Well, we were talking about being young
2: and wanting more, 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 mm, more.
1: Mm.
2: When was the tipping point for you where you went enough? Mm. When did you decide what enough was? I guess.
1: Well, I think when I realised I wasn't happy with just. Choosing. I had the feeling that I had this wonderful lifestyle. I had more money than I needed. For that lifestyle, because it doesn't take a lot when you're on the road. But the ability to interact or... You know that feeling, you've done this wonderful show and everybody loves you and you're going home by yourself with your bag (laughs) and your your money. And, you know, part of it's from without a base, you're forever moving. The physicality of having that ability to interact with people in a workplace. or It's just simply not there. Sure, and you start to ask questions about that you know how can you make that uh, work so it often was around falling into relationships and getting that connectedness through that the downside was that as the relationship failed then the whole package also evaporated Uh, (laughs) and you're back
2: to kind of this thing were the, the two stops that you made Singapore and Darwin both relationship based then yes
1: you know one was a marriage and the other one was a another relationship another relationship <laughs> and then uh-huh. Holland another recent one that uh, again I was quite happy to be there and enjoy this connectedness with a uh, community uh-huh. and say alright well, the shows of paying one a month was enough to cover costs I'll play around with ideas for a show and see what life brings which is where the, the magic carpet idea came up, yes, wasn't it yes yes so, and, uh, I started that with the idea. Let's get something small and easy and light to carry around. And I ended up with a you know twenty kilo <laughs> <laughs> motorized Segway underneath it, and the carpet, and the this and that, and yeah, but lovely. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> well, well they got really curious about where it's going, but uh, well, you know no, it you still find its speed. Yeah, I've got a couple of gigs for it this year, and uh, we'll see what uh, where that goes. I never thought I'd be into walk-around kind of uh, thing. But this is so strong in itself, there's very little to do. And in terms of something to do in your retirement, (laughs) it's a wonderful energy that you're just getting from people that takes no effort from yourself. And then how you enhance that, that's where I'm at at the moment. I've never been able to sit in a room and say, here's a show, it's going to work like this, and I want to do this, and I want to do that it's right. been more about throwing it in front of people and seeing how they react and go oh, okay this is oh, okay this one trial and error yeah yeah yeah. painful, painful, painful but the more successful I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know that's the only one I've
2: we have to find those moments and you can't find those moments without that spectator in front of you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to see what the reaction is going to be yeah. I have a really hard time with that too about the notion of rehearsing a show it's like Mm. are we bringing in an audience every single time for me to rehearse to because that's the only way I'm going to be able to
1: find those moments. Mm, mm. Yeah. That'd I'm sure there are benefits in being able to rehearse but I've never, I've set up rooms I've, just go, I've never got to tea <laughs> What the hell? Mm. Yeah. Mm.
2: The notion of tradition is interesting to me because you are talking about going to India and being a part of their tradition but being included into that tradition because you were A magician before you arrived Mm. and then the notion of there being a tradition in Covent Garden and being brought in and taken under Captain Kino's wing so to speak because he recognized that you were part of the family or the tradition of presenting shows on the street do you find yourself now giving back to that tradition when you see other people
1: or, or wanting to by any stretch? For me, I felt... And it could be that, as I said, I'm not hanging out a lot on the pitch as it was before. But from those early days, definitely that tradition of, do you have a place to stay? Are you okay? I'm oh, good. And that kind of sharing of making sure people... Are looked after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, and I find myself, in terms of philosophy or ideas about shows, sharing that a lot and it, um, that's a lovely experience well what, what is your philosophy about performing so maybe for me like instead of chasing that crowd and feeling you have to live up to their expectations that you're centred on your own time I think it's from these Indian magicians where you'll know, be one squatting on the ground one standing up talking and the one he'll call over what have you got there I say it's a snake what type of snake is it it's at this one and there's this dialogue that kind of goes backwards and forwards and the crowd kind of gathers in and gets onto their time uh, um, but I think we've all experienced when you've got an audience that you're not holding to try and keep them you get more tension in your body you chase and it's going nowhere except down but the ability to be able to stop kickstart bring them back onto your time to me, is the only solution. It right. <laughs> doesn't necessarily work. <laughs> every thing, but there's some hope. I also kind of call it damage control. But it's splattering, it's falling apart. Rather than chasing it, mm. just, in a sense, close the energy off and maintain your the pace. simmer yeah. and this thing. And you kickstart, and then you can get them back onto your rhythm.
2: I'm um, wondering, too, if the way you start your show... I mean I've seen you put your turban on and Mm. taking the time to establish a certain pace because before I can begin I need to prepare Mm. and it gives the audience time to start breathing in sync
1: Mm. with a certain pacing that the show's going to have and often because it's so different to high energy shows I've really got to work or I find a place I do better off the beaten track a little bit or around a corner rather than on the main centre thing unless, you know, like the Canadian festival where people are seated and ready for you then of course you come on you're taking their energy and using it right? Right. whereas if I'm building it um, yeah, I prefer that slow remember Granville Island Mm. the triangle Mm. and how difficult it was to get people over that the barrier, the barrier, the yeah, seating. Yeah. To get, ideally, you want them all in front of their seated. Then you build it up from the back. I remember this. <laughs> perform Canadian performers laugh. It was such a challenge to get this over, and here I am turning up, <laughs> going hello, I, uh, uh, India ma- magic. I am starting soon. Please. Yeah and these very nice Canadians all jumping, (laughs) coming over the barriers, sitting very neatly down, (laughs) and he's the turban tying, and getting it all onto this other place, other world, that they were happy to... You were inviting them into your journey. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to yelling at them and telling them what to do. Yeah, or, you know, this idea that the louder you are, the people will stand on the edge of that sound, as opposed to making it small, and the energy small, and people have to come into you... Um, So, yeah, are all playing with that. Um, and for me, that has been the wonderful thing. I think it was very early on where I realized the tricks themselves weren't entertainment. There was a famous book on you know, entertainment for magicians, or uh, Daniel uh, Fritzky. Fritzky, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what is it? showmanship for magicians, and, magicians yeah. yeah. and the idea that you know, you're know you presenting a puzzle for people and telling them they're stupid because they can't work it out and you're calling it entertainment <laughs> how could this be, be encouraging but the idea that you want to take that edge off and take the challenge of magic away and have it, for me it's mostly joke and entertainment there's one trick at the end the, ring and watch turning up into the can of corn or the ring coming back in the orange you go well how did he do it but the rest has got the magic thing that's very tongue in cheek to the point yes the magic's happening but it's more about this smiling (laughs) engaging and feeling that we're generating with the audience Mm. and that's the you know the connection is the thing that's important I also see that it's very easy to get caught behind your juggling clubs or your magic trick and until you can like yourself And be happy to present that naked (laughs) emotionally (laughs) to your audience and feel that. And then the tricks come in to support. Right. Uh, It's your excuse for standing there. Right. But uh, people are definitely more interested in other human beings and how they're interacting than they're going to be with the uh, tricks. True. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. What's
2: what's the direction you want to go in? I mean, you're saying Magic Carpet is
1: one thing that's that kind of grew some legs in the last uh, years but do quite seriously I'm maybe it's because I don't know whether it's because I had a- cooking as a thing and I've come into this and I see myself reflected in what I do huh. and I'm quite open to even non-performing existence if it services the needs I need as a human being. Right. And I feel it's around this idea of being settled. And as you get older, then need or the desire to be settled. Maslow's law of hierarchy. Explain it for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> I wish I'd read it. 2nd <laughs> yeah. knowledge. But the idea of you have roof and shelter, you can relax in order to develop and extend yourself. Um, but without those basics, you're forever trotting around on the surface. A simpler way of putting it, no roots. Oh, right. And actually, I've come from a background, so in a way, I call it again the destiny of a family in the Air Force that moves around. You don't belong in necessarily 100% in Australia or India or anywhere. So, constantly moving. It, yeah, so it's that. There, it wasn't It wasn't given my parents weren't the type to say you must go to school and study you do what you want to do to the best of your ability Good. it's enough mm. um, religion you'll make up your own mind so all that type of thing was in flux mm. are um, you looking for a
2: destination now or, or a, a sense of being settled
1: I sense there's a transition but I've never really gone and done anything I let the world present it <laughs> and you go with that uh-huh. rather than imposing I've read, well, recently realized the idea we shaped we believe we're shaping the world right? and that's what caused <laughs> a lot of the problem when you realize that you are in fact shaped by the environment and can accept that then everything is good uh-huh. where were you before just coming to Dubai? Chennai and how long were
2: you there? six months was that a place to have shelter and foundation? And... Definitely.
1: It's wonderful. It's a city, but a town between Bangalore and Pondicherry, called Tirul Banamalai. My uncle was there, and I came went to visit him in the 80s. And you can sit in a tea shop there and meet people from all over the world that are searching. It's a spiritual center. There's a mountain there that has an energy which... Apparently, if you live within 15 kilometers of this mountain, your attachment to thought will fall away by itself. And there's, over the years, I found there's certainly something there. So, do you go back on a regular basis? Then? 2010 to 2012, and then the Holland relationship. relationship was there, so then that stopped for a bit, and then earlier, 2016. And then this, so yeah, now it's, it's a regular, regular thing. yeah. So, so the wonderful thing is I can rent a house there that fits in my budget. Um, Live there without working for the six months and just be. And it's never boring. There's always stuff going on. And people, as I said, sit in coffee shops, people from all over the world, blah, blah, blah. Just life without the need and actually there it's considered leave your work behind don't bring that with you that's what you're trying to get away from there's a certain programming that is a flip side to the jobs and the things we do in the physical and to be able to let that drop away and think ah, okay and I think there's a in the 56 I'm 56 so it's time to look at that way of being and there's something whether we're doing magic or performing in general of For me, at any rate, where I'm not... You can say the character has has got a sense of me, but it's an act or a projection onto an audience with expectations, and Mm. there's something quite fake about that, you know. Uh, Not that it has to be for performers, but that's what I sense, Mm. whether it's that I'm an Australian pretending to be an Indian, (laughs) or, you know, this... uh, maybe uh, some kind actually addressed which was yesterday in the show I decided at the very beginning to say yes I'm from India and I'm from Australia <laughs> and I'm from Britain and I'm from Malaysia and I'm from nowhere I'm from everywhere and nowhere You know? mm-hmm. and move into a gypsy type where people can accept okay this is an interesting guy who's been from all these places and done all these things and we're actually meeting a real street performer mm-hmm. not somebody who's putting on this, uh, that's a wonderful Pre-genre. show. but Yeah, yeah. But I think as a, getting back to the idea of as a human being, to be able to be grounded or come more into that self, I find appealing. And I think, well, generally in life, that's always been the journey. And I just sense it. Yeah, are you familiar with the I Ching? No. It's called The Book of Change. And it's an oracle of sorts available online these days. You used to have to sit and throw up coins and look at the hexagram and look up in the book and it allows you to reflect on vital choices in your life and where um, that you're considering a superior man does this or that in this situation. It gives you the ideal stance to, and often it's not about giving you an answer, it's allowing you to reflect on ways of looking at Something which you might feel you have to go head-on into, but it says, no, actually, this is the time to receive. And if you receive it, you're going to change the perception this way and that way. So I threw this I Ching on, do I continue as a street performer, or do I do something else? Um, it's, it's called the watchtower, that, you know, you worked diligently to clean in a specific way, not going directly towards your goal, but moving away from it that allows it to come in. But anyway, from this work that you have risen up to, the top of the watchtower, if you like, where you can be an example by your behaviour or your style to those around you. I'm thinking, well, I don't know how that's going to (laughs) necessarily reflect in uh, continuing street performing. right? But it did give a little promise to say... I thought, I've never tried consciously. I don't have an agency. I've got one agent in Britain that gets me two gigs a year. I've got some friends that run festivals. But I don't lift a finger to write to festivals or anything. Nothing. And never have. I've been spoiled in my upbringing because it was always a blood that was around. Right. And yet the work continues. Enough to sustain me. And I talk like with people like Captain Keen. I go, how are we still standing? <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know? And it's an attitude, well, if it goes, it goes, good. But it's still, <laughs> and that was from the beginning. That After that manly thing, Vanuatu, this one, it just rolls, it seemed to roll out a carpet. And it keeps happening. Right. And there's a part of me that goes, well, I'll be quite, quite happy if <laughs> it just stops. <laughs> and the next one comes along. You know. <laughs> And it should be, you know, the path should, your life should have heart. You should <laughs> have the path. And I see very clearly that I'm a product of a lifestyle and a generation. Um, how that fits into where street performing is going, or is, I personally don't have a lot of confidence about. I think it's a cute show, but there's wonderful, vibrant acts that have lifted the bar to the degree that, well, I don't see how I fit with that. So where and how it's just a matter of waiting and seeing. Letting the carpet unroll a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. I think it's life Mm -hmm. unroll. This is that sense of destiny again. We have a journey and a place to be whole. We are always whole. We believe we're fractured (laughs) ups and downs of life but wholeness never stops. And maintaining or finding that space where you have that sense of wholeness getting back to India and Tiruvannamalai, in the mountain not to get too spiritual on it because I'm not really into the traditional look at uh, new age and spiritual life I think it's a bit of a circus where people are moving away from themselves rather than towards themselves in the exhibition of this but the idea of um, maybe a very tr- Indian traditional idea of Coming back to self in the later part of your life and being nourished and enjoying being slowing down to be get out of the mind. So yeah, I mean that way, joy. Yes, that's Without. the destination. Yeah, joy yeah.
2: and inner peace mm. and confidence in self. Mm. Yeah, and maybe that's where the journey began as well, seeking joy. Mm. seeking confidence and happiness with who you are is what becoming a street performer enabled you to discover Mm. Mm.
1: and whether it necessarily maintains it street performing is a vehicle it could be something else that maintains it in a better fashion for the individual at that time you can say people can actually be enlightened and become unenlightened the memory of it is there it sustains you to a degree Um, not the best example but yeah yeah I I listen to myself and I feel there's one foot stepping out of street performing not quite knowing where it's putting its foot down but we definitely I think have been nourished by street performing in my life to continue uh, wherever life takes me I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Andrew,
2: thank you so much. You're welcome. Been pleasure.
0: Stories from the pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit DolphinCreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, we wanted to leave you with another story that took place during the time that Andrew spent in India.
1: My friend Nassif in India would get a guy from the audience out. He said, I'm going to change you from a man to a woman. He says, well, how many balls have you got? He says, two. He says, the cricket bat, one. He says, okay, shake this leg, shake that leg. One, two, three. What are your balls are gone. The guy feels himself and goes. One's gone. And he starts fighting. Give it back. I don't want to lose my ball. He says, No, 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 I'm just joking with you. Kick this foot, kick that foot. One, two, three, now you dick and your other ball's gone. You've got nothing there. You're a complete woman. And the guy's (laughs) feeling (laughs) himself. (laughs) The first time I saw it, I'm totally convinced. How is he doing this? No idea. But they have a wonderful setup of whispering encouraging the audience member to play into the show with jokes that they feed, and he gets the sense of being a performer to the point that when it comes to this part, he's actually... Playing the role. Yeah, and credible. He gets his hand stuck to his nose, and they're doing all these kind of pseudo-hypnotism pieces. But Nasip finds, in the same village we live in, there's transvestites, and a lot of them are being cut, and have nothing, no genitalia at, at all. While they're working, they're dressed in women's clothes and doing their thing. When they're not working, they're dressed in normal clothes, as a man. Thank you. Then Nassif the spots this guy in his audience, <laughs> brings him out, does the whole routine, and has managed to pull his pants down and actually show everybody. <laughs> 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 Wow, that's a showstopper. <laughs>
0: On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye, freedom.